Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, this is our fifth week in this letter uh, that the Apostle Peter has penned. This is his first letter, <coughs> and we discovered that he has written this letter to Gentile believers who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. Uh, these are believers who are either going through suffering at this moment or are anticipating going through suffering at some point of time. Perhaps some of us find ourselves in a circumstance where we are suffering for the sake of Christ. Uh, the word suffering occurs 23 times in the letters in the New Testament. And Paul uses this word seven times in his letters. And the other letters that this word is contained in is Hebrews and First Peter. In fact, Peter uh, uses this word 11 times. And so out of the 23 times that this word is found in the epistles, 11 times Peter uses them uh, in his letter. Clearly, Peter is focusing on the theme of suffering and suffering in the life of a believer. But it's not just that a believer suffers, uh, which is true, but that he must or she must stand firm through suffering, which is the theme of this letter. So Peter is writing to his first century audience and to those believers that follow, including us, you and me, that we are to stand firm through suffering. And he not only states that we are to stand firm through suffering, he also helps us to stand firm through suffering. And how has he done that so far? If you remember in chapter 1, verse 1 to 12, he reminds us of our great salvation. Uh, without bringing this to mind, our suffering will seem pointless and we will grow weary in well-doing. And he reminds us in that section that our hope for the future uh, and a glorious future awaits every follower of Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 13, to the end of that chapter, he shift, shifts gear a little bit and he focuses on the sanctification of the believer and where he issues a series of commands. Uh, for example, in that section, he talks about being holy, uh, loving one another. And then he continues that theme in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 10, as he commands us to long for the pure milk of God's word and to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? And that means we are to be involved in God-honoring works done because of the living word of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but with the guidance of the written word of God, the scriptures. Following that section, he focuses, as we looked at last week, the behavior of the believer. And the theme there, as we learned last week, was the pursuit of excellence in our, in our behavior, both inside and out. Uh, we do that in three ways. Uh, we do that in three ways. Uh, first of all, we do that by abstaining from fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul, chapter 2, verse 11. And then we do that by maintaining our testimony, keeping our behavior excellent among unbelievers and developing a submissive attitude. The submissive attitude is seen in our relationship, as we learned last week, in our relationship to the civil government. It's seen in our relationships at work. It's seen at home, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. And we are to display such an attitude by considering the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
because he too suffered and he has left for us an example for us to follow in his steps. How was he an example? Well, that text at the end of chapter 2 reminds us that he was the only one who committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Uh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. And the text goes on to say that by his wounds we are healed. And this is how he became an example for, for us. And Peter is continuing his focus on the behavior of the believer. But there is one area that he hasn't yet focused on. And it is the area of relating with other believers and unbelievers. In the midst of suffering, what must your attitude, what must my attitude be towards other believers and unbelievers? He answers that question for us in the section that we are going to study today. So I've titled our lesson for today, The Believer's Attitude in Suffering. The Believer's Attitude in Suffering. I'm going to give the answer to you up front, and then we are going to see it being developed in the text that is in front of us. We are Peter's response to the question, what must our attitude be towards believers and unbelievers in the midst of suffering is that we are to have a mind that is ready to submit, a theme that we looked at even last week, but this is a different audience, and then we are to have a heart that is ready to suffer. We are to have a mind that is ready to submit and a heart that is ready to suffer. So let's begin then with a mind that is ready to submit as we look at the first two verses in chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 9. To sum up, he says, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Essentially, what Peter is focusing on is our responsibilities as we think of a mind that is ready to submit. What are our responsibilities when we think of a mind that is ready to submit? Peter is not yet done with the theme of submission in the life of a believer. Now, having dealt with submission, as I mentioned before, in relationship to a civil government, in relationship to work, at home, now he comes to submission as the overall mindset of the life of a believer. What does a submissive mindset look like? Uh, what does a submissive mind look like? He lists five or perhaps even six actions that display such a mind. First of all, notice verse 8. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. Uh, to be harmonious is to have a common pattern of thought. This is to have a shared mind or heart about something. Uh, this is actually a unique term and one that occurs only here in the New Testament. Uh, some of the com other common ways of describing this word is someone having one mind, uh, someone who is agreeable or someone who is like-minded. That's what harmonious means. But like-minded in what? Uh, like-minded in their common commitment to the truth. Uh, if someone desires to be a member at Countryside, we have them read a doctrinal statement. 
it is our, our summary of what the scriptures teaches about various aspects of doctrines. And we ask them to agree with us on those doctrinal statements which is drawn from the scriptures. Of course, there are certain areas where we do allow disagreement and yet allow membership. But overall, on the key themes, we want to be on the same page. Uh, this common commitment to truth produces an inward unity of heart with one another. We frequently use the word like-minded in regards to other local churches where there is a common commitment to the truth of God's word. You know, such a commitment is not in word only, but something that is to be seen in actions and in attitudes. It's not enough to have the same last two words in the name of your church, you know, Bible church. Uh, it's not even enough to share the same doctrinal statement. It is what you do with that statement, how you implement that statement that is important. Uh, that is what it means to be like-minded. And Peter says here, be of the same mind, be harmonious. Uh, secondly, he says, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. Uh, to be sympathetic is to be affected by or to share the same feelings. Uh, it's a uh, Greek compound word. Uh, that is, it is made up of two words, sim meaning same and pathos meaning feeling. Having the same feeling. It is an attitude that is especially displayed in difficult times. Uh, to be harmonious, as we learn, is to be of one mind when it comes to truth. There's a shared commitment to truth, but to be sympathetic means to share the same feelings. We are to be ready to sympathize. That is, share the same feelings when somebody else is going through suffering. Uh, we are to do it with those who we know, and we are to do it for those who we do not know those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Now, to put it in negative terms as believers, we are not to be insensitive or indifferent to the pain and sorrows of unbelievers. Rather, our attitude must be one of sympathy. Uh, to empathize, which is another word, with someone is, uh, uh, who is suffering is to understand their feeling. That's what empathy means. With someone who is suffering, when you understand their feelings or try to understand their feelings, that's what empathy, empathy is. But not necessarily share those feelings. That's what sympathy means, when you share the feelings of that person. Now, practically, that means that when someone is going through a loss, when someone is suffering, they've lost a dear one, that instead of philosophizing and rationalizing, the person who sympathizes just goes and sits with them and hugs them and tells them that they're praying for them. That's what sympathizing means, same feeling. Thirdly, he says, be brotherly or show brotherly love. Uh, the word there is philadelphos, which is better translated brotherly love. Uh, this is the love uh, that is shared among those who are closely rel related, uh, in this case, brothers. And the examples of lack of such a love in the world that we live in points us to a standard to what it means to love in, in this way. Uh, this sense of brotherly love, a love expressed amongst family members, uh, would definitely resonate with Peter's audience to who he is writing. Remember, Peter's writing to what he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, chosen aliens or uh, exiles. Elect exiles is who he's writing to, 
these are people like us on a temporary visa in this world. You see, we, we are citizens of another world. We are citizens of heaven. And in a world of aliens, Peter is appealing to a familial love, a love that is expressed among family members. Why does he do that? You see, by doing that, he's seeking to mitigate the alien status that we as believers have in this world. You know, one of the common ways in which believers address each other is that you are a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, we call each other brother and sister in Christ, not, not because we can't remember their name, although that might be true about some. <laughs> no, we, we, we do not do that because we, we do that because all those who have received Christ and believed in his name, to them God gave them the right to be his children. You see, we are a part of the family of God. Brotherly love, or be brotherly. Uh, fourthly, be kind-hearted, he says. The word there is also translated as tender-hearted or compassionate. Uh, the word literally translated from Greek means healthy entrails. Uh, this is an even more powerful word than just feeling or, or sympathizing, as it is something coming from the very insides of who you are. In our, in our English language, heart for us is the seat of our emotions, uh, for the Israelites, it was the bowels or the intestines that were the seat of their emotions. And even in modern English, you still have the remnant of that when we say, you know, I, I feel this in my gut or I have a gut feeling about this. Uh, this word then builds on the word sympathize. Both have to do with feeling. To be kind-hearted mirrors the kind-heartedness that God has shown to you and to me through his Son, we are sinful people. And the kind of compassion that God shows, he has been kind-hearted to you and to me. Uh, fifthly, he says, be humble in spirit. Uh, this is a word that means humble-minded. It's a quality, uh, really, that was most out of step to the culture that Peter was writing. Uh, to be humble meant, in that culture, someone who was of a low status, uh, someone who was base or marginal not someone who is a part of the mainstream of the society. And what does Peter do? Uh, Peter takes that word and then wears it as a badge of honor, uh, humble. Well, why, why focus on humility or humbleness? Uh, well, that's been the theme throughout the entire scriptures. In the Old Testament, uh, this was a virtue that was highlighted and appreciated. In Psalm 18, verse 27, the psalmist writes, for you save an afflicted people, which is humble people, but haughty eyes, evil eyes, you abase. Proverbs 3.34 says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted or to the humble in spirit. And not only was it a virtue throughout the scriptures, but even the New Testament talks about humility. And who is more humble than our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember Philippians 2.6-8, he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, and here's the word, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Humility or be humble in spirit, as he writes here. One final mark, which is the sixth one, 
He says, be responding to evil with good. Be responding to evil with good. Don't respond to evil actions against you with evil. Or if someone reviles you or insults you, uh, don't revile them back. Don't insult them back. How then should you respond? Notice what he writes in verse 9. He says, respond by giving a blessing. And the word blessing means to speak well of someone or to give praise to them. But that's not how Peter uses that word here. In fact, in giving someone a blessing, what you're doing is speaking well on behalf of them to someone else. Uh, so the way the word is used here is in terms of well-being, or more specifically, a spiritual well-being. So here is what Peter means when he uses the word bless someone. It is to pray for their salvation if they're not believers. It is to pray for their sanctification if they are believers. It is to pray for the unbeliever that God would have mercy on them and save them. Isn't that what our Lord did when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. You see, when you bless someone, when you pray for someone's salvation, you're fulfilling a calling that God has placed on your life, which is what Peter talks about at the end of verse 9. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Uh, this purpose being that you were called to bless others and in turn then receive blessing from, from God. In 1995, the then South African government established a court-like body. Some of you perhaps have heard this called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The goal was to bring about reconciliation by uncovering truth and then granting amnesty to those who come and admit that they did something wrong. And so if you were one of those who committed racial crimes, and if you came forward and admitted to doing so, the government decided to give you amnesty. At one of these hearings, a policeman named Wandy Brooke recounted an incident when he, he and some other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body to destroy the evidence of his existence. Uh, eight years later, Wandy Brooke, the police officer, returned to the same house, and then he sees the boy's father. And the wife was forced to watch as this policeman bound her husband on a wood pile, poured gasoline over his body, and ignited it. Now, this is going on, remember, in a courtroom-like structure where this police officer is admitting to what he did. When he admitted this, the courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost her first son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. The judge asked, what, what, what do you want from Mr. Vandy Brook? She responded, uh, Mr. Vandy Brook took all my family away from me, but I still have a lot of love to give. Uh, twice a month, I would like him, for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vandy Brook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would now like to embrace him, she said, so he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand. But Wandy Brooke, the police officer, did not hear the hymn. He had fainted, overwhelmed from what was happening. Now that is what it means to return blessing for insult or for evil.
but what is the motivation for our responsibilities? We've looked at our responsibilities, but what is the motivation for our responsibilities? On what basis can we do this? Uh, to provide a basis, a foundation for what he writes, Peter actually takes us back almost 1,000 years, uh, 3,000 for us, as he plans us with David and his men who are hiding in the cave of Adullam. You'll see that in verse 10 to verse 12, uh, if you have a, a NASB, those would be all capitalized, telling us that that is a quotation from the Old Testament. Just to give you a context of when David wrote the psalm, uh, David was a fugitive in his own land, uh, fleeing from one of his own countrymen, Saul, who was trying to kill him. And so initially he flees to Gath, and then in Palestine, and then he comes before this king called Abimelech, and he then feigns madness in front of them, and so this king doesn't want anything to do with David. He throws him out, and then David and his men seek refuge in this cave, or the cave of Adullam. And Psalm 34 is written in that context. You see, David, as he's writing, or perhaps even sharing with his men uh, the psalm, David's goal is to remind himself and to teach his men that a true fear of the Lord was the only right response in the midst of suffering. How do you suffer well? How do you suffer and honor God through it? Well, you fear him. And Peter quotes this psalm to provide us the motivation to fulfill our responsibilities. Let me read that with you. For, he says, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Uh, what is the motivation for our responsibilities? There's two desires that Peter mentions here. First is a desire to receive God's blessing. Uh, the one who desires life, he says, or loves life, and the one who desires to see good days, is the one who desires to receive God's blessing. Uh, such a person's goal is to live life in the fear of God. Uh, what, does a person, what does such a person do who lives in fear of the Lord? Well, such a person, notice verse 10, uh, stays as far as he can from speaking evil. He not only does not speak evil, he also keeps away from lying and manipulating situations. Uh, he does not deceive uh, just because he's going through a tough time, he does not manipulate the situation or seek a shortcut or he does not compromise on his principles. In fact, uh, the verse goes on to tell us that he turns away from evil. If he's committed to evil in one direction, he redirects his step and turns away from evil and does good. But remember, David is sitting with his men in a cave hiding from Saul. He's facing suffering from his own countrymen. And he's telling his men, don't just think in terms of war and violence and, and battle. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. Don't just think in terms of war or fighting. Think also in terms of peace. Not only seek or desire peace, but he says passionately pursue peace. Long for it. Now this is a mind that is ready to Submit. It's a submissive mind. This is what a person 
who desires to receive God's blessing does. But there's another desire that is mentioned, and that is mentioned in verse 12. It says, the one who desires to please God recognizes the supremacy and the dominance and omniscience of God. He or she recognizes and accepts the fact, and what a comforting fact this is. The fact is that if you are justified by God, if you're declared righteous by God, then know that his eyes are watching over you. And his ears are attentive and it's, he's listening to every spoken and unspoken prayers that you have to offer. Uh, there is then a desire to please this God. But there's also the recognition that unlike his favor on the righteous, at the end of verse 12 it says, his wrath rests on those who do evil. His face is against those who do evil. And this is what Peter has in mind as he thinks of a mind that is ready to submit. He lists six responsibilities that we have and then provides two motivations for those responsibilities. You know, this brings to an end really the section, the first section of Peter's letter. His focus has been to show us what a submissive mindset looks like. Uh, and we initially, if you remember the outline of First Peter, we began by studying the salvation of the believer. Secondly, we saw the submission of the believer. We now begin to study the last section in First Peter that focuses on the suffering of the believer as Peter begins to equip his readers and you and me to respond to suffering and persecution as a believer. Uh, perhaps some of you are in the midst of such a situation right now. Perhaps you will come across such situation not too far in the future. Uh, this equipping takes place as Peter so shares with us several tools that help us stand firm through suffering. The first tool he gives us is he encourages us to have a heart that is ready for suffering. A heart that is ready for suffering. Let's read together verse 13 to verse 17. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Uh, Peter will give us at least six indicators of how a heart that is ready to suffer looks like. Uh, the first one is a heart that is ready to suffer displays a zeal for righteousness. Notice verse 13 and then 14. A sanctified heart uh, displays a zeal for righteousness. Peter begins by first uh, stating that even in a normal world, and what, what he states in verse 13, even in a fallen world that all of us live in, there are not many who will seek to harm you. Uh, if you are zealous for what is good, normally no one bothers a person who is doing the right thing. In fact, the governments are established to encourage such a behavior. Uh, it's another matter that not all governments do that. But that is the reality of the world we live in. Even evil leaders or monarchs value those who do good. 
But Peter says, let's say, let's assume that you continue to do good and you are harmed for it. You suffer because of it. In such a case, you're still a blessed man or a blessed woman. See, because a zeal for righteousness is the mark of a man. It's the mark of a woman who is privileged, who is blessed by God. Now, on the face of it, the, this particular verse seems to contradict what Peter has just said in verse 12. What does he say in verse 12? It's the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, it might seem the conclusion is that if you're facing difficulties and challenges in life, that you must be doing something wrong or something evil. And there seem to be really only two options if that's the case, uh, that believers who are suffering are suffering because they're doing something evil, or it may mean that the Lord to whom uh, worship is given by these believers is just incapable of giving any help or does not want to give any help. But there is a third option. And it is an option only because our Lord redefined the way things work in this world. What do I mean by that? See, we all live in a fallen world. There's no doubt about it. And the fallen world works according to its own value system, a system that is rooted and grounded in sin, tit for tat. But in, in and, uh, through those who, of us who are redeemed, it is by doing good that the redeemed attract unwanted attention. Because through their behavior, they're going against the flow of how things work in this world. You see, if you and I just love someone because they love us, then we are just like the world. Uh, doesn't our Lord even say that? But if we love even when someone hates us, now that is a different ethic. That is a different law. And that goes against the norms of this world that we live in, and it invites hate and malice from those who are not followers of Christ. But that is what you and I are called to be and to do. We have to display a zeal for righteousness. We see this exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he came to die for the very ones who hated him and who murdered him. Zeal for righteousness. But secondly, a heart ready for suffering or heart ready to suffer also displays or is filled with courage and confidence. Notice at the end of verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Peter again quotes from the Old Testament. Here he uses Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. Now whenever a quotation from an Old Testament is taken, you want to understand what the context of that particular text was and then you'll understand why Peter is using that here. You see there, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that took place in in the 8th century, somewhere between 731 to 715 BC, uh, the background on that quote is that there was an attack that was expected from the Assyrians on the southern kingdom. Remember, at this time, Israel is two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And the Assyrians, which are powerful um, a powerful empire, they come up against the southern kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom, Judah was the southern kingdom. And the kings of Israel and the king of Syria, they join forces and they want to help the king of Judah, who is Ahaz. But Ahaz actually refuses help from Israel or from Syria. Uh, that makes them come together, Israel and 
Syria and to come up against King Ahaz. In this situation, Ahaz thinks it might help me now that the Israelites and the Syrians are coming against me, that I might be better served if I join forces with the Assyrians. I join hands with the one that is evil, in this case, the king of Assyria. And that's what actually he does. And so Isaiah actually writes to him and warns him against doing that. He says to him, like it's quoted here, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't join forces with evil Assyrians. Don't fear. Don't fear their intimidation. That's what Isaiah writes to Ahaz. And Peter quotes Isaiah here and is telling believers, don't fear like those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't fear like other people. Don't fear threats or intimidations from other people. The implication being instead fear or be filled with courage and confidence. But courage and confidence in whom? It's in the Lord that they believe in, isn't it? But how can you be filled with courage and confidence? How can you not fear and not be troubled? And the answer is found in the third mark that is given. Notice verse 15, the beginning portion. A heart ready to suffer gives the Lord Jesus Christ his rightful place. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now before we understand what it means, it's helpful to note this sentence. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's actually a continuation of the quote from Isaiah 8 verse 12. Peter stops there. And in our Bibles, that portion is not um, capitalized for a reason. Because Peter there, you see, replaces something. Let me show you the quote first. Uh, this is Isaiah 8 verse 12 at the end. And then... Verse 13 says, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. So you see, it's not an exact quote that Peter takes, which is why it's not capitalized, because Peter replaces the title Lord of hosts with Christ as Lord. Do you see what he is doing? He is equating the Lord of hosts with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why is that significant? You see, the Lord of hosts is the Hebrew term Yehovah Shabbat. Uh, Shabbat means hosts or armies, uh, heavenly armies. Uh, the God of Israel is the God of heavenly armies. And Peter replaces that phrase and puts the Lord Jesus Christ in there. Uh, Jesus is God and Jesus is the Lord of hosts. It is this God who Peter is saying we must sanctify in our hearts. Uh, when you go to share the gospel with someone, when you are sharing the gospel with someone, do you recognize the kind of force and the power that is behind you when you do that? You don't go in your own strength. Uh, what does Peter write here? He says, consider or honor or set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Affirm and pledge your submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means. Uh, what are you really doing when you're pledging your submission to Jesus Christ? If you're a follower of Christ, you have pledged your submission to him as your Lord and Savior. What are you doing when you do that? Well, basically, you are setting him apart in your life. You're giving him the primary place in your life. He alone is the one you are pledging to adore and worship and praise. You are declaring that he is the only one who you will love, revere, be loyal to and ultimately obey. 
you are recognizing who he is, that he is the Lord of hosts, that he is divine, and that he is preeminent. Uh, you're submitting yourself to his will in your life, even if his will means for you to suffer. That's what it means to sanctify Christ as holy in your hearts. Uh, that is a heart that is ready to suffer. Not only that, fourthly, a heart that is ready to suffer is ready to defend the faith with gentleness and reverence. I was 15 at the end. A heart that is ready to suffer is a heart that is ready to defend the faith with gentleness and reverence. Now Peter says we must always be ready to make a defense. Uh, this is a posture of a soldier that is in a war. He's always ready. He's always alert. Uh, there's never a moment in his life when the guard is down. Because the moment the guard is down, he will be attacked. Uh, you are, I am, to be always ready, ready to make a defense. The word there for defense is the Greek word apologia, from where we get our English word apologetics from. It's an area that deals with providing reasons for your faith, to give an account for the hope. Uh, what is this hope? It's the hope of our salvation. Uh, what is that hope? Well, it's an anticipation for every believer that he is going to escape hell and enter the very presence of God when he dies or if the Lord comes back. And so Peter is saying to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The indication there is that you and I as believers, uh, we are to live such exemplary lives such stellar lives that we are asked by our unsaved family member, uh, that we are asked by our neighbors and our co-workers, uh, that we are asked by our friends, tell us, tell us why are you so different? Uh, perhaps some of you have experienced that at your workplace. Uh, there's something different about you. You don't respond like others do. Uh, you don't participate in the things that I participate in. Tell, tell me what is different about you. I had this experience when I was working with, with Maersk, uh, a shipping company, where this guy, my boss, he was from Denmark, and he came to visit us and see how we were doing. This was back in Charlotte. And uh, he, he said to me, there's something different about you. What, what do you believe? How, what do you believe about how we were created? And I said, I, I believe that God created us, and he did that in six days. And he was stunned. Um, he didn't know what to make of it, because typically he... Uh, you know, generally media doesn't portray believers in a, in a good way, as that's not a secret at all. But he was stunned to sit there and see that a colleague of his, uh, you know, from all appearance, you know, I, I had a thinking mind and I was able to sit and talk with him. He was shocked that I would believe that someone created this world. And so I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. And so he asked me questions. Perhaps you have experienced this from your workplace, your neighbors, your relatives, living exemplary and stellar lives as a follower of Christ. But the problem uh, is that with some of us, no one is asking. Because it seems that there is very little to differentiate between the world and the way it lives and the way some of us who take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ live. But that could be only for two reasons. One, some of us call ourselves Christians are really not followers of Christ. They just have taken the name of Christ. 
The other reason could be that if it is a genuine Christian and their life is no different than the world around them, then it's a high possibility that they're living in unconfessed sin. But regardless of the situation that you are in, let me remind you that the only way that you can be right with God is by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take the name of Christ, Peter is saying, live like you belong to him. And Peter goes on to say, do this, defend your faith, but do it with gentleness and reverence. Why does he add that? You see, to share your faith with gentleness means to share it with humility. Do not do it with dominance or be overbearing on someone when you're sharing the gospel with them. Uh, this is an attitude that says there was a time when I myself was in your position. Uh, this is an attitude that says I genuinely care for your soul and its eternal destiny. And my goal is to be as gentle and lowly as I can because my Savior was like that. Gentleness. There's another word that Peter uses. It's the word reverence. It's, it's, it means that everything that we do, we do is to be done with that shows an attitude that shows our devotion to this holy God. A commitment to his truth and a genuine respect for the other person who we are sharing the gospel with. That's what reverence means. And in being gentle and reverent, you are acknowledging the fact that the person with whom you are sharing the gospel with is of worth and value because he or she also is made in the image of God, just like you and I are. That's what it means to defend the faith with gentleness and reverence. Now let me give you one tool because this is an area that I love, which is apologetics. One of the tools that our Lord used to do well, to get better, not the Lord needed to get better, but I needed to get better, and you need to get better. One of the tools that we can use in the field of apologetics is the ability to learn how to ask good questions. Now, I give an example, but I do not give it just to show uh, my intelligence or smartness, but there was a time when I would frequently travel between New Jersey and North Carolina. We were living in New Jersey, and uh, my office had just shifted to Charlotte, and so I would take these planes every week uh, 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 to travel from New, uh, New Newark, New Jersey, to go to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I would take these early flights, and so uh, that was the only time in the morning that I could get uh, in the flight to open my Bible and read from it and, and pray. And one of these flights, I found a lady sitting next to me, and she was very intrigued, looking at me why... I am reading this book. She quickly found out it's the Bible. And so she asked me, well, what are you reading? I told her, it's, it's the Bible. And she said, well, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, what kind of a Christian are you? Now, I was f fairly new to the country at that time. This is 2007, so m many years back. And so I didn't know if there were classes of Christians in this country. <laughs> and I, I just said, uh, you know, I'm an evangelical Christian. I said, okay, so you believe that every other religion is false and Christianity is the only true religion? And I said, yes. Uh, do you believe in Jesus Christ as God? I said, yes. And no one else is God? Yeah, that is, that is what I believe. And she said, well, that is narrow-minded. That is so narrow-minded. I said, because I believe that there's only one way to heaven, you think I'm narrow-minded? She said, yeah. It was a two-hour flight, and so by the end of that flight, <laughs> uh, 
Um, we, we did talk a lot more things than that, but at the end of the flight, I said to her, you know, if the pilot were to come on the speaker system, and if he were to say, well, you know, for many years, we have been landing this flight only one way, on its wheels. Today, we are going to try something different. <laughs> we are going to turn the plane upside down and try to land it that way. I said, if he were to come and say that, what would you say to him? Uh, I don't know, that's, that's not the way to land the flight. There is only one way to land the flight, she said. And so I turned to her and I said, that is so narrow-minded. <laughs> and you know, she got the point. Uh, the point is that truth, by definition, is narrow-minded or narrow. And just because we believe in truth doesn't mean, doesn't make us narrow-minded. Because each one of us believes in a certain truth. So one of the tools, then, is to learn how to ask good questions. How can you do that? Well, study the life of our Lord. He asked good questions. Good questions, what they do is they draw out the assumptions that you have in your own heart and mind. And Francis Schaeffer loved to say that when you keep asking the right questions, at the end of that process, the person who you are asking the questions to does come to many times the realization that his worldview doesn't hold ground. So ask good questions. But there's two more that we need to finish as we come to the end of this text. A heart that is ready to suffer values a good conscience. A heart that is ready to suffer values a good conscience. It values a good conscience because even if you are slandered and insulted, the text says, the ones doing this will be put to shame and your standing before your Lord will remain intact. It doesn't do anything to your standing before your Lord. Uh, what then does it mean to have a good conscience? What is a good conscience? It's that inner voice that each one of us has that produces in us when, uh, a certain feeling when we sin, either a feeling of shame or guilt. It's that sense God has placed in every human being, which when activated because of sin, leads to anxiety uh, or despair or even fear. What then is a good conscience? A good conscience is a clean conscience, is one that is marked by a life that is lived free of any unconfessed sin. And it is one that is lived under the authority of God's word and in genuine fear towards him. That is a life lived with good conscience. A note of caution, though, as we think of this word conscience, uh, don't equate conscience with God's law. Conscience is not something you can equate with the law of God or with the word of God. It is something that is in you that can be influenced by the, by the world around you. And so when it is influenced wrongly or by sin, it can send wrong signals. It can make you feel guilty when you're not really guilty. And the only way you can overcome that is by letting your conscience be impacted or influenced by the word of God. That is how you inform your conscience. And the more you submit yourself to the word of God, the more it will influence and impact your conscience to respond in a way that God has created it to, to act and to be. A good conscience. A mind that is ready to suffer values a good conscience. And finally, a mind, a heart that is ready to suffer rather, recognizes the sovereignty of God over all suffering. 
A heart that is ready to suffer recognizes the sovereignty of God over suffering. Notice verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Uh, although it is a concluding statement for Peter's argument which he began in verse 13 and 14, you, so he, you see he says in verse 13, uh, generally you will not suffer for doing good. But let's say if you do suffer, you are blessed, he says, verse 14. And then verse 17, he says, well, it's better that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And tucked between those two phrases is another phrase that is packed with meaning in verse 17. The phrase is, if God should will it so. If, if God should will it so. The phrase is both revealing and comforting at the same time. It's revealing because no suffering will come to a believer without the permission of God. Now, when you overlook or ignore that, when you overlook or ignore the fact that no, permission, no suffering is going to come in your life without God's permission, when you overlook that fact, you are left to deal with it on, in your own strength. But when you know that regardless of my situation, God is in control, and if I'm suffering even when I'm living a God-honoring life, then it must be that God has plans and purposes for my life that I do not have access to, but I trust him, and I trust his love and care for me, and that is enough for me. It's the same truth that Paul writes about in Romans 8.28, doesn't he? He says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, that truth is comforting. Uh, that truth is comforting because the reality that it is based on. It is based on the fact that God is sovereign over my suffering and in that I rest. In him I rest. So what should our attitude be in suffering? To develop a mind that is ready to submit, a submissive mind, and we are to have a heart that is ready to suffer. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the help that it is to us. All scripture, as we were reminded even in the morning, is breathed out by God. Help us, therefore, to be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit and one who returns blessings when evil or bad things are done against us. Help us to have that mindset that is submissive to your will and to your plan. And not only that, help us, Lord, to have a heart that is ready to suffer. If you live godly lives, Paul will write to Timothy, then expect that you will suffer for it. Lord, help us. Equip us. Uh, help us to seek your plans and purposes, which are always right and best. Help us to be at the center of your will for our lives. Do thank you for everyone who is here today. I do pray for our, our day today and then the rest of the week that you would continue to equip us to suffer well for your honor and for your glory. Help us to stand firm through difficult times. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.